This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. We live in space, in time, among other people with all kinds of needs and influences and desires. Our lives are connected and what we do and how we act impacts others. Even more, our environments matter. The places we live, the earth we inhabit, our own homes. But do we think of ourselves in those terms when we consider media and communications? How do we practice responsibility for our communications ecology, especially in and for the church? Our guest today is asking questions just like that. He is Brett Robinson, Director of Communications and Catholic Media Studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. With a background in English and in marketing, as well as a Ph.D. in mass communication from the University of Georgia, Brett is leading a new effort to help parishes and dioceses develop practices and strategies for communications in a new media environment. In particular, he's developing a new program for church communications ecology with initial funding from the Lilly Endowment. He joins me, Leonard DiLorenzo, on Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, where we engage academic and pastoral leaders in critical issues in the life of the church. Brett Robinson, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Brett, look, I see you all the time because we work together, but something pretty neat happened recently, which I thought we should talk about on the air. And that is that on behalf of the McGrath Institute for Church Life, you wrote for and received a $1 million grant from the Lilly Endowment to launch what you've dubbed a church communications ecology program. So there's a bit to unpack there, so I wanted to start with this. How do you understand a communications ecology? Help us to understand that. Sure. So this is based on a metaphor of, well, an ecological metaphor. So the idea that an ecosystem, like a natural ecosystem, is only in balance or in equilibrium when all of the parts are working together well and in a healthy manner. So... We can apply that to media and communications because if you think about a community, communications is kind of the glue that holds the community together. So the rituals, the content, the things that we do as community uh, contribute to its health. And so as things change, as ecosystem change or as communities change, uh, adaptations have to be made just like it would like you would in a natural ecosystem. So we're looking at this question because uh, of the fairly dramatic changes that have occurred over the last 20 or 30 years around communication, especially the advent of digital media, and the way that changes our relation to one another, to our communities, to our families, to ourselves. So those elements work, we think, work together in some harmony when we think intentionally about them. Uh, And so we're hoping to develop that uh, for the church. Let's talk about the church here then in relationship to a communications ecology. The program that you're going to develop is targeted at a healthy and holistic communications ecology for the church. And as you said, kind of responding to some of the changes in the ecosystem of communications that have come about, especially in the last 20 or 30 years. If you were to identify some of the key aspects of the church's approach to communications, what would they be? Maybe especially in terms of the digital media environment. Well, I think the church deals with this on a couple of different levels. So one is the church is called really by its identity to transmit 
the gospel. And so there's a transmission of information and message and person uh, in the form of Christ that we have to undertake as church. And so as we encounter new mediums and channels for doing that, we have to consider the best way to use those mediums and channels for transmitting that message. But the other part of communication that I think is one of the church's strengths is the ritual side of communication, which are those things we do on a fairly regular basis that help form community. So they're repeated things like the liturgy, but it could also be something like a family meal or a community gathering. So it's not so much the content of those exchanges that matter, but the ritual repeated nature of them that help give the uh, community some identity and cohesion. So as somebody who's a media scholar and a professional in the communications field, how do you think about that for developing strategies for communications on behalf of the church or for particular church communities or for institutions in the church? How do you think about those things? Well, I try to look at it historically and, and think about the ways that the church has had to deal with this in the past, which if you think about the most, I guess, stark example would be the printing press. So you have this technology that gives you all of this transmissive power. I can transmit lots of information much more quickly than I could before, but we've failed to I think sometimes attend to the way that changes the ritual nature of our communication and community. So when private reading becomes a regular occurrence in a home or in the church, it actually changes the dynamic in some pretty significant ways. And it doesn't actually matter what people are reading. It's just the fact that that practice has now become habituated. So from a strategy standpoint, we tend to focus immediately on content. What are we saying how effective is our messaging? How many people are we reaching? And we don't sometimes attend to the ritual side, which is how is this changing people's practices, which changes their habits, which changes their behaviors, which ultimately can change their beliefs. So we want to try to attend to both. And that's really the nature of the ecology idea is to achieve that equilibrium or that balance in the community and in the church. There has to be some attention paid to both what we're saying and then also how we're saying it, the channels we're using to and the mediums that we're using to develop it. So in this example of the printing press, what I'm hearing you say is that what is being printed, mass-produced now, and is one thing. And it begins with the Gutenberg Bible and then a whole host of things afterwards. But now everybody has access to the same text that looks exactly the same way. And something of the communal dimension of the reading of those texts has been taken away because now it's available for private reading. If we look now at our new medias, and is the digital envi environment affecting the same kind of change as the printing press so that we often think about what's being communicated in digital space, but how do we need to think about the way in which we're being engaged in a digital environment? Yeah, and I think you see some, in some ways you see some amplifications um, or extensions of what the printing press did with regard to how communication information habits become ever more personal and private. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually start to act out uh, or develop identities online through what we post and what we say. So whereas the even the printing press was sort of a passive vehicle in the sense that I received information and read it, I could contemplate on it, I could meditate on it, uh, it might change my thoughts in some way. But unless I owned a press, I couldn't uh, put my thoughts <laughs> right. out in response. And now we can. And so that, once again, changes the dynamic. And to return to the ecosystem metaphor, every time you introduce a new medium or technology into the environment, it changes all the previous ones. So 
uh, in the biological sense, if you have a healthy ecosystem and a new predator or virus or something enters that ecosystem, then it changes the balance and, and the species in that ecosystem have to adapt. And so we are in this process of adaptation as we try to adapt to this new information environment. And I think one of the special charisms of the church that, that has to be developed is beyond transmitting the gospel message through these new channels, we also have to attend to some of the psychological and even psychiatric fallout mm. of new habits and practices and behaviors and thoughts that come out of these new practices of digital consumption and production. We are now producers too, so yeah. it raises new questions. Yeah, I've got to say, when you mention a predator being introduced to an ecosystem, I can't help but think of the film The Predator and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to fend this off. So maybe for the rest of our program today, our listeners can imagine you as the Arnold Schwarzenegger figure trying to help us deal with our new predators in the ecosystem of the digital media. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Brett Robinson, Director of Communications and Catholic Media Studies in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. We'll be back. <laughs> Stop. We're not going anywhere, and that was unnecessary. Brett is currently developing a new Catholic communications ecology program with initial funding from the Lilly Endowment. All right. Now back to what we were talking about, Brett. So let's think about that. Let's go all the way down to, let's say, the parish level, right? Uh, I think when most of us think about parish communications, we think probably almost exclusively of parish bulletins, um, announcements after Mass or maybe before Mass, which is a better time for them, um, and maybe like a mediocre to a non-functioning website, right? Like here's, here's the standard parish communications uh, platforms. What should we be thinking about in terms of parish communication? So you said the transmission of information. So some of this has to be with giving information over and educating, but on the engagement part and creating uh, mediums for communication, how might we start to think about parish communications anew? Yeah, that's a great point. And to be fair, I, I've talked to a lot of parish webmasters who who admit that a lot of websites are mediocre and not often updated. And I understand, I think someone's done this research, but over 60% of those websites, the managers of those websites don't actually know the password to the website <laughs> oh, no to way. change it. So <laughs> part of it's just organizational. But um, but to your question, I think the church actually isn't doing a bad job of, tr again, transmitting the messaging. And we have, again, all these new affordances to do that. I feel like in some ways, and this is kind of an editorial comment and maybe can get tossed out in editing, but I... I don't know that fixing the bulletin is like the the main um, or should be the main concern of most parishes. I, I know there have been attempts at different designs and uh, different ways of delivering it. And be that as it may, I mean, I think it serves its purpose as a sort of an information, a bulletin, really, just to right. get the information out. Hear the but, bullet points, yeah. But to the other part of that, which I think is the part you're kind of pointing to, is the opportunities that communication can give us uh, for deeper engagement and encounter and education in the faith. And I know these aren't read often or quoted often, but St. John's letters, so before the apocalypse or revelation, <laughs> um, th there's this, he says this a couple of times, actually, I think at least twice, but um, at the end of his letter, he says, you know, I'm saying this in paper and ink, but I, I really want to be with you so mm. that our joy may be full. And St. Paul doesn't say it in those same words in some of his letters, but he does at the end of many of his letters say, I, I want to be with you. And so I think if we think of our 
communication channels as a means to an end, especially the new affordances, that Facebook and Twitter and, and some of these platforms are not places to gather as a community, but places to point back to communities. So how can we use these channels to enhance or amplify those in-person encounters, those face-to-face mm-hmm. encounters that bring us joy? And that's, that's tricky because a lot of what we do with new media is we import practices or habits that we've uh, developed from the previous media. So we're coming out of a television age. And so television taught us and print taught us uh, about advertising primarily uh, as this really powerful vehicle for communicating and persuading. And so in some ways, we're looking through a rearview mirror with digital media and saying, oh, now we'll do this sort of persuading and marketing of, of the message through these new media. And it's like, no, there's a new paradigm that's been introduced that has new affordances, actually, that TV and print didn't have. And that's what we need to sort of think about as church and as a parish community is what can these things do to enhance what it means to be uh, a parish and not fall into some sort of old sort of mass media um, marketing habits. Yeah, because I can imagine the flip side of that would be if you go too far on the transmission side of thinking of how to use new media to be able to get a message out from a parish to a community to maybe new people— you're sort of reducing the parish to this generator of content that's then exported, but that's not what parish life is. It's a stable community of the faithful. It's a place formed, gathered around a sacramental presence. Its rhythm is the liturgy, which means actually being in a place at a time uh, with others. So how is that balance between the outreach through media and ongoing engagement through media, how is that balanced with actually tying it to a place and particular people, which is at the heart of a of parish life. Yeah. I, again, I think it's where's the information point? If it's pointing ever outward, then we do get that kind of centripetal force that sends us. Is it centripetal or I centrifugal? I can never remember. I was, I was grateful that you said it, <laughs> um, and now I'm unsure again. But uh, or maybe The force it, that pushes you outwards. Yes. <laughs> we're spinning outwards. Um, These are two people with PhDs. Not sure <laughs> which, which word works here. So the internet has that tendency to sort of spiral us outward. And if you think about your own browsing habits, I know in mine, mm-hmm. you know, you're reading something and then there's a link to something else. And then before you know it, you're reading about something completely unrelated to what you started reading about. And so that's that's sort of antithetical to what you're describing and what we're thinking about, I think, as parish communities would need to be more sort of uh, centered and stable and the other force um, that the force that comes in in, the force that pulls you in (laughs) so yeah how do you use a a media or a technology that tends to have this opposite force and and Mm -hmm. work again you know i don't know if the question is balance i think it's like again i think it's habits i mean i talked to a father Mm -hmm. yesterday at my parish who was doing um Exodus 90. And he said, you know, one of the hardest things I had to do for this Exodus 90 program, which is one of these um, sort of parish-based men's formation programs that asks a lot of kind of ascetic disciplines of you to deepen your spiritual life. One is to give up video games, and he's a very avid video gamer. And so he's done this for about a week now, and he's found that he has all this spare time. He's talking more with his wife. Uh, And I thought, you know, this is really a really simple but elegant demonstration of what we're thinking about when we talk about a communications ecology, because the removal of that one element from the ecosystem, his video game mm-hmm. habit, gave him time. And that time could then be rededicated to his family. So this is why we want to think about media, not just as transmitter of information, but as habituator of practice. And that 
we can, if we start to change our media practices, that we can actually change uh, our own spiritual sort of life and also our life of our community. Interesting. Well, in the summer of 2019, you hosted a kind of trial of this broader program that you're now building. And for that, in summer of 2019, you gather together 30 really Catholic media professionals, scholars, practitioners um, for a week-long symposium on Notre Dame's campus. What did you learn from that gathering or what did people there kind of learn together in talking with other scholars and practitioners from across the world. Yeah, man, we learned a lot. It was an incredible group because it wasn't a single discipline. There were there was theology, there was sociology, there was uh, corporate communications, there was political theory. And what really struck me was that despite these different disciplines, there was a kind of we felt where we were engaged in a common task that these questions and these these points that we've been raising today are on the minds of many regardless of discipline and and our own really our unifying sort of connection was that we were all interested in how this did apply to the church and to parish life and and as I saw it develop from all these different angles I, I got really inspired and encouraged and it really fueled the writing of the Lilly Grant and now the emergence of the program because we think as educators and as people working in both corporate and church communications that there are ways to make this accessible to our our parish audiences and to our partners and dioceses to say, look, there's a different, you know, there's a different thing happening now with digital and, and we want to help you understand it. And this isn't going to be sort of how to tweet better for your parish, but like how to engage the environment in, in a more holistic way. So we're really excited about that. And yeah. that really kicked it off in a nice way. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Brett Robinson, Director of Communications and Catholic Media Studies in the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Brett is currently developing a new Catholic communications ecology program with initial funding from the Lilly Endowment. So let's talk about this program that you're now building. Can you lay it out for us a little bit? I know it's in the it's in the initial stages and this will be unfurled over the next several years, but what are some of the key components of this program that you're building? Sure. So we want to carry forward this environmental metaphor and we're taking a lot of cues from Laudato Si, Pope Francis's uh, encyclical on the environment, because in it, he doesn't just talk about the physical environment and the responsibility and uh, care that we owe that environment, but also the psychological environment and the way in which information technologies and te- other technologies are influencing that environment. So we are inviting a cohort of parishes from uh, a diocese, and we're going to do this uh, in, in subsequent years as well, but one cohort from one single diocese so they can kind of work together on this. But we're offering three workshops and we're really saying um, to them uh, in the beginning, how do you even assess your environment? How do you know what's um, working and what's not mm-hmm. from everything from the church bulletin to kind of the habits and practices uh, of folks in your community around media and, and other modes of communication? And then once we've kind of walked them through how to do that assessment, we we regather a few months later in the, in the diocese. So the first phase is here at Notre Dame. And then we're going to travel out to the diocese and start what we call the remediation process, which Mm. is to say, you know, if you go into an environment or an ecosystem and you find a pollutant or you find something that's out of balance, you want to address that. And so once they've done the work of assessment and they found those uh, those gaps or those those points of um, that need attention. Uh, then we can begin the remediation process. Of course, a play on the word media, but um, how do we? All, I was all over. Yeah, I was all over. <laughs> <laughs> I love puns. So we remediate with them, and and a lot of this is user generated in the sense that we're not necessarily sort of lecturing them on 
what they need to know, but really giving mm-hmm. them a, a guide um, and a and a set of tools to do it themselves. Yeah. Um, that's where they I think they can really start to own it and practice it. And then we gather once again in the summer for a third time. That'll be next summer to have them present to us what they've developed. And so. How do you become aware of the environment? Um, once you're aware of, of that environment, how do you address some of the problems in it? And then share that with your parish cohort and diocesan cohort. So we're hoping to learn a lot from that and from them. If folks wanted to follow up and learn more about this, is there a place they can go yet? Sure. They can go to our website, mcgrath.nd.edu, um, and then they can go into the uh, conferences and programs uh, section, and there's a link to the Church Communication Ecology program there. It sounds like you know how all the things on the website are connected. Is this because you designed it? (laughs) (laughs) With the help of many. Yeah, with the help of many. So it's mcgrath.nd.edu and then look under conferences and programs so you can find communications ecology. I wanted to ask, because you're like me, the father of a small tribe of human beings, and I know you've also at times spoken to groups, even groups of young people, about developing virtue in the digital age. So this is in some ways related to not just surviving, but maybe even thriving in our new uh, media ecosystems. Could you give us some insight into what you find to be some of the important aspects of virtue and virtue development, um, perhaps especially for young people that are important in our digital age? Yeah, I've gotten really interested in this question lately. And I was really curious about how far back this goes, like how how long have people been talking about virtue as it relates to technology? I mean, mm-hmm. we see a lot of that now, of course, with what's happening with digital. But were you know were we talking about this a century ago or or five hundred years ago? Um, and one of the really interesting things I found was that um, there was a period in the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, I think, that the virtue of temperance was always depicted. They were depicted as figures, as human mm-hmm. figures. And she was always holding like a clock or some other contrivance or machine. And I thought, weird. You know, this is like (laughs) the Middle Ages and the virtues. You think of these sort of pure ethereal sort of things that that we aspire to. And and yet here she is like wearing a clock. And and so as I read more about this, it, it... the, the explanation was that, you know, the clock was sort of this metaphor symbol for a rightly ordered um, approach to things. And so that really struck me to see this kind of combination of technology and virtue even six, seven hundred years ago. Mm. Um, and and it occurred to me how relevant that was today as sort of maybe even the queen of technological virtues, which would be temperance, which is to say that there is this, as we know from the research that's been coming out now, this kind of addictive quality to screens and so forth. And so how do you, what's the countermeasure to that? And I would, I would strongly advocate something like temperance and, and, and with young people, the same thing. But I think you could actually go through the whole list of uh, vices and, excuse me, the whole list of vices and the corresponding virtues and say that actually we could apply most, if not all of these to um, our media practices as well. So things like lust or gluttony, um, Mm -hmm. pride. And so, I have a friend actually who's working on a book about this or the seven vices of the, vir- of the virtual life. Um, and so I would encourage our listeners to sort of look at those um, seven deadly sins and vices and the corresponding virtues uh, and to think about how that does apply to their to their uh, life online or to their engagement with digital media. Is this book the first you've heard of any kind of like, I don't know what that is, like a spiritual guide or a rule for developing virtue uh, specifically in a digital age? Mm. Not the first. Um, I know of at least one. I mean, there's, I think, several others, but one that's widely read, I think, is Shannon Valor's book called Technology and Virtue. Mm. 
she's at Edinburgh now, but I know there are philosophers working on this, and I don't know how many in the church are, are uh, though. So that's part of my own research, actually, okay. is finding out who else is doing that and, and trying to help develop that as well. Yeah. So as we talk about technology and the increasing effect or prominence of technology and the way in which, especially as it looks now, um, automation is taking off more and more, artificial intelligence, all of these things, we some of us maybe just a few of us start to get worried about something like a robot apocalypse, which I joke with you about often. But it also makes me think of all of these uh, sort of dystopian films that have been made for the last 30 years and even longer than that, kind of projecting into the future that we seem now to, like we're in the time period that they were looking forward to. Which of those, if you could think of a film, I'm like, this is coming out of absolutely nowhere, but which of those kinds of films do you think is most accurate or will prove to be most accurate? I mean, is it something like Terminator? Is it The Matrix? Is it Children of Men? Is it Her? Which Joaquin Phoenix? Which one comes to mind right away on the hot spot here on the air? Probably Frozen 2, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly what I anticipated. (laughs) Defend your answer, Brett Robinson. Actually, I I mean, I I would actually say, um, because it's a hot seat question, Uh I, I go immediately to... Uh, Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm. Um, there's something very haunting about that film and and the HAL character, the computer mm-hmm. that interacts with these human beings that takes on, I mean, it's almost, it's sort of a nuanced, subtle, nefarious character as, as the movie goes on. But I love it. And I, and I actually, I think the spate of space films that have been released recently speak to this. Mm. And I, I think we could do a whole other show on this because I've been thinking about this a lot. But Space films? Space films. Okay, we're going to do that. Because I think in some ways space as an environment, if we could mm. put a bow on this little environmental discussion. Please do. <laughs> space as an environment actually uh-huh. is very – just as an image and as a landscape and as an imaginative space is – to me, makes me think of what the digital space is in a way. And wow. Why, what do I, why do I say that? It's cold. It's, it can be dark. It's, this is not a well-developed thought. I wish I could do this again because no, I have no, a no, lot of thoughts up. on this. But, but the space environment, and we, I just took my son to see Ad Astra, and uh-huh. Interstellar was popular a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. Um, Gravity was another one. Right. And if you read sort of the subtext in all these films going all the way back to 2001, it seems like space is the right setting for our confrontation with technology. Like it's happening in this sort of abstracted environment. And I think it's this – maybe this is what I meant to say. It's the the sensation that being online gives us is this kind of placelessness. And so what other place feels like that other than space? You know, when we're on the earth, terra firma, mm-hmm. we're in a city, we're in a home, we're in a parish, we're in a, in a riverbed. There's something geographical or topographical that makes us feel rooted in something. And in these films, you feel very like you're drifting and you're untethered. And these motifs play out in these films. In fact, in Gravity, George Clooney floats off into space because his little tether breaks. <laughs> and at the end, Sandra Bullock comes back to Earth. And it, yeah. it's this really joyful, yeah. almost Genesis moment when she kind of crawls yeah. out of the ship into the muck, almost the rebirth of, of being a human again. So that's what I'd love to see in this digital environment yeah. is that moment of like remembering what it means to be human because um, those fears are real. I mean, AI and all these other things pose a threat to that understanding. And so as church, I think we have to um, uh, attend to that. Well, that is an excellent place to end. And 
we are definitely going to follow up and do an episode on space movies with you. I can't imagine how good that's going to be. So we hope that you'll join us again, uh, not just for when we have Brett Robinson back to talk about space movies, but in the coming weeks as we continue on Church Life Today. But for now, thanks, Brett, for joining us. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for spending your time with us on Church Life Today. We'll be back. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.